who use it as the basis for managing stock portfolios. The success of the initial research project led to a major expansion of the research endeavor in which Gotham spent tens of millions to develop and test a more sophisticated construction and application of value indicators. The proprietary indicators used were conceptually similar to the magic formula, but were considerably more complex and yielded more accurate measures of value. The results were so good that the partners shifted Gotham's money management methodology from a concentrated special situations focus to a diversified systematic value approach. The new diversified approach also had much greater capacity, effectively removing the reason that had prompted the return of investor capital in the original Gotham Fund. In 2009, Gotham returned to the world of money management, launching two long short funds, one large cap and one small to mid cap. So 15 years after having returned investor money and believing himself to be permanently out of the money management business, Greenblatt, in coordination with Goldstein and a team of 10 research analysts, found himself once again managing investor money based on the same core principles. This time, however, the trading was based on a diversified systematic methodology instead of the original approach, which yielded a concentrated portfolio of value and special situation stocks. Greenblatt and his team at Gotham next applied the systematic value approach to the task of constructing value-weighted indexes, which appear to substantially outperform all existing types of equity indexes. Gotham has launched several funds and separately traded managed accounts trading these new generation value-weighted indexes in both U.S. equities and international equities, with the funds segmented by cap size. The funds trading these new generation indexes provide mutual fund and institutional equity index investors with a seemingly much better investment alternative. This new investment vehicle is the big secret in Greenblatt's third book, The Big Secret for the Small Investor. Greenblatt believes that it's just a matter of time before other mutual funds begin copying this innovative approach, but that Gotham's proprietary research capabilities and process should continue to provide superior performance versus competitors. When you were young, did you have any idea what you wanted to do with your life? Probably not. I had a better idea of what I didn't want to do. I got an MBA and then went to law school primarily because I didn't want to get an investment banking job working 90 to 100 hours a week, but I dropped out after one year when I realized I had no interest in being a lawyer. What got you interested in the stock market? In my junior year in college, I read an article in Forbes about Ben Graham. A light bulb went off, and I started reading everything I could find on Ben Graham. In college, we were taught the efficient market hypothesis, which wasn't very appealing to me. The theory didn't coincide logically with what I saw going on in the market. There were lots of stocks that doubled or halved during the course of one year. The premise that these stocks were efficiently priced at all of the prices between their highs and lows seemed implausible to me. When I read Graham, I thought to myself, that is so logical. Stocks fluctuate around fair value over time. Did you have any interest in the market before that point? I had an interest in horse racing and dog racing more than in the stock market. Did you go to the track? I went to the track when I could get in, usually the dog track because they weren't very stern about keeping you from sneaking in. Did you have any methodology in betting? Unfortunately, I didn't. I'll never forget my first big bet. One time I went to the track with my cousin and I found a dog who had run 12 seconds faster than all the other dogs. But for some inexplicable reason, the odds against him were 99 to 1. That seemed like a great bet to me. I didn't know why the other gamblers were so stupid. The dog finished dead last. 
After the race, I found out that the dog had run 12 seconds faster at a much shorter distance, and that this was his first time running a longer distance. That experience taught me a quick lesson that I had to do more research. When did you first start investing in stocks? After I read about Ben Graham and before going off to law school, I started a fund buying what Graham called net nets, stocks trading below their liquidation value. I did a study on stocks selling below their liquidation value, which eventually turned into my master's thesis. I worked with two of my friends from business school, Richard Zena and Bruce Newberg. We didn't have money for a database. The university library had the S&P stock guides for the past ten years or so. We manually collected the data from the guides. We only looked at about 15% of the stock universe because it was pretty mind-numbing getting the data by hand. At the time, the University of Pennsylvania had a DEC-10 computer, which was about four times the size of this room, and probably had less power than today's smartphone. Richard was pretty good with computers. We put all our data into the computer and found that Graham's formula, which he had written about many years earlier, still worked extremely well. The portfolios we put together using Graham's principles did much better than the indexes. The study got published in the Journal of Portfolio Management in the summer of 1981. Before going off to law school, I started a fund to buy stocks selling below their liquidation value with $250,000 that I had raised from my father's friends. How long did you manage that fund? For about two to three years. When I had my first full-time job, it was suggested to me that it was not appropriate to keep the fund running. How did the fund do? It made 44% cumulatively. Since you had gotten off to such a good start with the fund, did you consider the possibility of building that into a career instead of getting a job? I thought I had more to learn. It was a good experience managing other people's money and knowing what that felt like. What was your first investment-based job? After my first and only year at law school, I took a summer job trading options at Bear Stearns. Did you know anything about options at that point? No, I ended up doing forward conversions, which are a riskless arbitrage. The idea was to put on these arbitrage trades and earn 18 to 19 percent annualized. The option market was that inefficient at the time? No, interest rates were that high at the time. I think that arbitrage added about 5 percent to 6 percent to the risk-free rate. Frankly, the trading was kind of mechanical. At the time, you didn't have the option prices on the screen in front of you. I had to run to the other side of the floor to get a printout of option prices to see what options were setting up attractively relative to the stock. Then I would run back to my desk to try to execute the trade. Although it was interesting learning about options by the end of the summer, I knew that I had no interest in trading options for a living. What did you do after the summer job? I got a job as an analyst for a startup risk arbitrage firm called Halcyon Investments. There were three partners, and I was the only analyst. They offered me 22000 which was about half the going rate for MBAs at the time. I jumped at it because I loved the idea of being the only analyst in a startup firm. I thought I could learn a lot. Wasn't the fact that you had no experience at all in merger arbitrage an impediment to getting the job? Well, at $22,000, they clearly weren't willing to spend much money and weren't looking for an experienced analyst. I hope they were just looking for someone with potential. What year was this? I started December 1981. Ironically, you began your career right before a major bottom in the stock market. It was interesting. At that time, not many people were looking to go to Wall Street because the market hadn't gone up for 13 years. 
What were your experiences in your first job? At the time, merger arbitrage was the Wild West. There were great inefficiencies and plenty of opportunities so that even a pedestrian year might be a 60% to 80% return. Was this just doing plain vanilla merger arbitrage? We did do straight risk arbitrage, and there were wide spreads available. But I was never that attracted to the risk-slash-reward in risk arbitrage. In the Ben Graham approach, if you pay a cheap price for something, you have asymmetric returns on the upside because you can't lose that much. But you still have large profit potential. Risk arbitrage is exactly the opposite. In risk arbitrage, you're trying to make $1 or $2 if the merger goes through, but risking $10 or $20 if the deal breaks. Instinctively, I didn't like those odds, even though, on average, if you had a lot of deals, it paid off well. I was always attracted to the periphery of risk arbitrage, such as hostile deals, meaning another bidder was coming in, or deals where there were interesting pieces of paper being offered instead of cash. The fact that I understood options because of my summer job at Bear Stearns was also very helpful. In risk arbitrage, timing is very important. When is the deal going to close? If you have some edge in answering that question, you could gain leverage by using options that expire at a certain time. Also, by knowing the price at which a deal was going to close, you could find opportunities and options which were critically dependent on price and which might be mispriced because the merger distorted the normal probability distribution assumption implicit in option prices. You could also use options to hedge deals that might break. There were so many interesting combinations. Did you get involved in other event-driven types of trades as well? We did some at Halcyon, but when I started out on my own, I was very attracted to special situation trades where there was something going on in the business and the usual rules didn't apply. It might be a spin-off or a new piece of paper being issued or a recapitalization or a two-tiered tender offer Situations that the typical Wall Street analyst was not equipped to evaluate. I liked complicated situations. If there was a 400-page document to read, I was attracted to analyzing the deal because I knew most other people wouldn't read it. How did you go from your job as an analyst at Halcyon to starting your own fund? One of my friends, Bruce Newberg, who was one of the co-authors for the paper we wrote for the Journal of Portfolio Management, worked for Mike Milken. One day after I had been at Halcyon for about three years, I was talking to Bruce on the phone and happened to mention that if I could raise several million, I would go out on my own. Bruce called me back the next day and said, Mike said, fine. Milken ended up offering to invest twice what I had asked for, but I only wanted to start with seven million. I had been trading my own account while I was at Halcyon and making over 100% a year. I wanted to make sure I could run the fund the same way as my personal account, and I didn't want to start off too large. Can you give me an example of the types of trades you did in your original fund, which had a special situation's focus? One interesting example was a Marriott spinoff. Marriott got caught in the real estate downdraft of the early 1990s. Marriott's primary business was hotel management, and they got stuck owning a lot of the underlying hotels, which they usually tried to sell off. So they spun off the hotels and the debt that accompanied the hotels into a new company, Host Marriott, and kept the good business, Marriott International. The main business, the hotel management, was actually a Buffett type of business, and it was being relieved of all its debt. So it was a very clever transaction. But what I was most attracted to was what I call the toxic waste of the transaction, Host Marriott, which was the heavily leveraged, out-of-favor part of the business that no one wanted at the time. What attracted you to it? 
The first thing that attracted me to it was that it was clearly unwanted by anyone who could read either the newspaper or a balance sheet. I thought no one else was going to pay any attention to it because it looked so ugly, so it might be fertile ground for me to explore. Also, I thought institutions would likely sell off their shares in the spinoff because it represented only 10 to 15 percent of the original company and would probably be too small a cap size for them to hold. The spinoff was also in a different business. Most people investing in the parent, Marriott International, were interested in the hotel management business, so they would discard host Marriott, which was in a different business, hotel ownership. The lack of new buying interest and the likelihood that many of the Marriott shareholders would sell off their shares in the spinoff meant that there was a good chance that host Marriott would end up being undervalued. It certainly meant it was worth taking a close look at. So what did you find? I found that insiders had a large stake in the spinoff. The guy who masterminded the spinoff was actually going to run the bad business. It didn't make sense that he would choose to go with the spinoff if it was really as bad as the press reports made it sound. Also, the Marriott family was retaining 25% ownership in Host Marriott. I also discovered that Host Marriott provided tremendous leverage. It was expected to trade at about $3 to $5 per share with debt of about $20 to $25. For illustration, assuming a share price of $5 and a debt of $25 would imply the assets of the new company would be worth about $30. The low share price relative to the company value meant a 15% increase in value of the assets would nearly double the value of the stock. Of course, leverage could work the other way, but the upside potential was lopsided relative to the downside risk. The stock can't go below zero. Also, given the large insider ownership, I didn't think it was likely that the deal would be structured for host Marriott to fail. In addition, the deal required that Marriott International, the good Marriott, extend a $600 million line of credit to host Marriott. What ultimately happened? As expected, most institutions dumped their shares at a low price. The stock then nearly tripled in four months. Can you give me another example of a special situations trade that illustrates your approach? In the early 1990s, Wells Fargo, which had an excellent long-term consistent fee-generating business, came under a lot of pressure because of its high concentration of commercial real estate loans in California at a time when California was in the midst of a deep real estate recession. There was a possibility, although unlikely, that the real estate downturn could be so severe that Wells Fargo would go through all its equity before investors could get the benefit of their long-term fee generation. If it survived, though, the stock would likely be much higher than its current depressed price of $80, which reflected the prevailing concerns. The way I looked at the risk-slash-reward of the stock was that it was a binary situation. The stock would go down $80 if Wells Fargo went out of business, and up $80 if it didn't. But by buying leaps, with more than two years until expiration instead of the stock, I could turn that one-to-one risk-slash-reward into a one-to-five risk-slash-reward. If the bank survived, the stock should be a double, and I would make five times my money on the options, but if it failed, I would lose only the cost of the options. I thought the odds were much better than 50-50 that the bank would survive so the stock was a buy. But in terms of risk-slash-reward, the options were an even better buy. The stock did end up more than doubling before the options expired. How long did you continue to trade the same general strategy as you did in the hedge fund after returning money to investors in 1995? For about ten years, then we gradually transitioned to investing using a systematic value approach. Why the change? 
It wasn't a change in investment principles. I've always been a value investor. The Gotham Capital Fund and Gotham Capital subsequent to returning outside capital held a concentrated portfolio of both straight-value positions, that is, value positions without an obvious catalyst, and positions in special situations, which are more catalyst-driven trades. The transition to what we're doing now came about because I always wanted to test the principles I had been teaching and using to manage money. In 2003, Rob Goldstein and I hired a skilled computer programmer so that we could backtest some of the key measures we look at when we evaluate a company. The first metric we tested was based on Ben Graham's principle of buying cheap. How did you define cheap? There are a lot of ways of measuring cheapness. We used the earnings yield, which we defined as the ratio of earnings before interest and taxes, EBIT, to enterprise value. In his book, The Little Book That Beats the Market, Greenblatt provided the following explanation of earnings yield. Earnings yield was measured by calculating the ratio of pre-tax operating earnings, EBIT, to enterprise value, market value of equity, plus net interest-bearing debt. This ratio was used rather than the more commonly used P.E. ratio, price-earnings ratio, or E.P. ratio, earnings-price ratio, for several reasons. The basic idea behind the concept of earnings yield is to simply figure out how much a business earns relative to the purchase price of the business. Enterprise value was used instead of merely the price of equity, i.e. total market capitalization, share price multiplied by shares outstanding, because enterprise value takes into account both the price paid for an equity stake in a business, as well as the debt financing used by a company to help generate operating earnings. By using EBIT, which looks at actual operating earnings before interest expenses and taxes, and comparing it to enterprise value, we can calculate the pre-tax earnings yield on the full purchase price of the business, i.e. pre-tax operating earnings relative to the price of equity plus any debt assumed. This allows us to put companies with different levels of debt and different tax rates on equal footing when comparing earnings yields. For example, in the case of an office building purchased for $1 million with an $800,000 mortgage and $200,000 in equity, the price of equity is $200,000, but the enterprise value is $1 million. If the building generates EBIT, earnings before interest and taxes, of $100,000, then EBIT, EV, or the pre-tax earnings yield would be 10%, $100,000 over $1 million. However, the use of debt can greatly skew the apparent returns from the purchase of these same assets when only the price of equity is considered. Assuming an interest rate of 6% on an $800,000 mortgage and a 40% corporate tax rate, the pre-tax earnings yield on our equity purchase price of $200,000 would appear to be 26%. As debt levels change, this pre-tax earnings yield on equity would keep changing, yet the $1 million cost of the building and the $100,000 EBIT generated by that building would remain unchanged. In other words, PE and EP are greatly influenced by changes in debt levels and tax rates, while EBIT, EV, is not. We looked at the 2,500 largest companies in the U.S. In the first test, we ranked the stocks based on the EBIT-EV ratio. We used CompuStat's point-in-time database, which is the actual data that was available as of any given past date, so there is no look-ahead bias. That database starts in 1988, so we started our test from that date. The twist that Warren Buffett put on Graham's method was that it is nice to buy cheap businesses, but if you can buy a good business cheap, that is even better. One of the metrics Buffett used to decide whether a company was a good business 
was return on tangible capital. In the book, I used an example of Jason's gum shop, which cost $400,000 to set up each store, including inventory, displays, and other costs. And every year that store throws off $200,000 in profits, which is a 50% return on capital. Then I compared it to another business called Just Broccoli, which also costs $400,000 to open a new store, but every year that store throws off only $10,000 in profit, or a 2.5% return on capital. Clearly a business that can run 50% on capital is better than a business that can run only 2.5% on capital. Another way to look at it is that every business needs fixed assets and working capital to be in business. And the relevant question is, how efficiently does it turn its fixed assets and working capital into profits? So the second metric we used in our test was return on tangible capital. In his book, The Little Book That Beats the Market, Greenblatt provided the following definition and explanation of return on capital. Return on capital was measured by calculating the ratio of pre-tax operating earnings, EBIT, to tangible capital employed, net working capital plus net fixed assets. This ratio was used rather than the more commonly used ratios of return on equity, ROE, earnings equity, or return on assets, ROA, earnings assets, for several reasons. EBIT, earnings before interest and taxes, was used in place of reported earnings because companies operate with different levels of debt and different tax rates. Using operating earnings before interest and taxes, or EBIT, allowed us to view and compare the operating earnings of different companies without the distortions arising from differences in tax rates and debt levels. For each company, it was then possible to compare actual earnings from operations, EBIT, to the cost of the assets used to produce those earnings, tangible capital employed. Net working capital plus net fixed assets, or tangible capital employed, was used in place of total assets, used in an ROA calculation, or equity, used in an ROE calculation. The idea here was to figure out how much capital is actually needed to conduct the company's business. Net working capital was used because the company has to fund its receivables and inventory. Excess cash not needed to conduct the business was excluded from this calculation, but does not have to lay out money for its payables, as these are effectively an interest-free loan. Short-term interest-bearing debt was excluded from current liabilities for this calculation. In addition to working capital requirements, a company must also fund the purchase of fixed assets necessary to conduct its business, such as real estate, plant, and equipment. The depreciated net cost of these fixed assets was then added to the net working capital requirements already calculated to arrive at an estimate for tangible capital employed. We took the same 2,500 companies and ranked them on their return on capital. We then combined the two rankings, one based on the earnings yield and the other on return on capital. We effectively equally weighted these two measures by adding the two rankings, which gave us the best combination of cheap and good. If a company ranked number one based on earnings yield and 250 based on return on capital, its combined rank value would be 251. We weren't looking for the cheapest companies and we weren't looking for the best companies. We were looking for the best combination of cheap and good companies. In the book, I call this combined ranking the magic formula. During the 23 years of our back test using the magic formula to choose a portfolio of the top 30 names from the 1,000 largest capitalization stocks, would have approximately doubled the return of the S&P 500, 19.7% versus 9.5%. Selecting portfolios from the 2,500 largest companies would have had an even larger outperformance, but would have required holding less liquid smaller cap stocks. 
The decade of the 2000s was particularly interesting. During 2000 to 2009, the formula still managed to deliver an average annualized return of 13.5%, even though the S&P 500 was down nearly 1% per year during the same period. The power of value investing flies in the face of anything taught in academics. Value is the way stocks are eventually priced. It requires the perspective of patience because the market will eventually gravitate toward value. We also divided the formula rankings into deciles with 250 stocks in each decile. Then we held those stocks for a year and looked at how each of the deciles did. We repeated this process each month, stepping through time. Each month we had a new set of rankings, and we assumed we held those portfolios, one for each decile, for one year. We did that for every month in the last 23 years, beginning with the first month of the CompuStat point-in-time database. It turned out that decile 1 beat decile 2, 2 beat 3, 3 beat 4, and so on all the way down through decile 10, which consisted of bad businesses that were nonetheless expensive. There was a huge spread between decile 1 and decile 10. Decile 1 averaged more than 15% a year, while decile 10 lost an average of 0.2% per year. Since there is such consistency in the relative performance between deciles, wouldn't buying Decile 1 stocks and selling Decile 10 stocks provide an even better return-slash-risk strategy than simply buying Decile 1 stocks? My students in hundreds of emails asked the same question you just did. The typical comment was, I have a great idea, Joel. Why don't you simply buy Decile 1 and short Decile 10? You'll make more than 15% a year and you won't have any market risk. There's just one problem with this strategy— Sometime in the year 2000, your shorts would have gone up so much more than your longs that you would have lost 100% of your money. This observation illustrates a very important point. If I wrote a book about a strategy that worked every month, or even every year, everyone would start using it and it would stop working. Value investing doesn't always work. The market doesn't always agree with you. Over time, value is roughly the way the market prices stocks, but over the short term, which sometimes can be as long as two or three years, there are periods when it doesn't work, and that is a very good thing. The fact that our value approach doesn't work over periods of time is precisely the reason why it continues to work over the long term. Our formula forces you to buy out-of-favor companies, stocks that no one who reads a newspaper would think of buying, and hold a portfolio consisting of these stocks that, at times, may underperform the market for as long as two or three years. Most people can't stick with a strategy like that. After one or two years of underperformance, and usually less, they will abandon the strategy, probably switching to a strategy that has done well in recent years. It is very difficult to follow a value approach unless you have sufficient confidence in it. In my books and in my classes, I spend a lot of time trying to get people to understand that, in aggregate, we are buying above-average companies at below-average prices. If that approach makes sense to you, then you will have the confidence to stick with the strategy over the long term, even when it's not working. You will give it a chance to work, but the only way you will stick with something that is not working is by understanding what you are doing. When we got our results showing a perfect ordering of the ten deciles, my partner Rob Goldstein and I looked at each other and said, This is pretty interesting. We got these stellar results without trying very hard. We thought that by making further refinements, we might want to manage our own money using a systematic value approach. We now have ten analysts and go through the income statement, balance sheet, and cash flow statement of each of the companies in our universe, and we figure out what real cash flow is and what real assets and liabilities look like based on the way we analyze companies. We have built our own database for over 4,000 U.S. and foreign stocks. 
Forward-looking estimates? No, we are still looking backward. How much does this more complex analysis add via V the magic formula you presented in your book? If you are building a diversified portfolio from the entire universe of stocks we follow, it is quite helpful to be using the right numbers, although a diversified group of at least 20 or 30 stocks following either method does quite well. As good as the systematic value approach works, it still doesn't reach the level of returns you achieved using a concentrated special situations approach in your original fund and the account that you continue to trade, using the same methodology, after you returned investor money. That's true, but when you have only six to eight main positions and one or two of them don't work out, you're not very happy. Using our current systematic value approach, we can put together long-short portfolios with hundreds of names on the long side and hundreds of names on the short side that can earn 15 to 20% per year, which compounds very nicely with much less volatility than a portfolio of six to eight names. If I were starting all over again, I would probably still do it in the same way I originally did. But now that I am investing a larger sum of money, I prefer compounding at a good return without assuming the greater volatility that comes with high concentration, even if it means foregoing some extra return. Given this investment preference, the systematic value approach is very appealing. One approach is not better than the other, they are just different. It is an evolution, not a change in process. We have just systematized the same principles we always use to make money. That is what has stayed the same. We are just doing it in a more diversified, methodical way and taking advantage of our team of analysts. I suppose your current approach can also handle a lot more money. It can, although that was not the original objective. Our main goal was trying to reduce volatility. People don't fully appreciate the importance of not losing money. Negative compounding is very difficult to overcome. If you lose 50% of your money, you have to make 100% to recover the loss. If you have more volatile returns, that volatility can result in larger losses that are more difficult to make up. If, however, you have a more diversified long-short portfolio, you have a smoother ride and the opportunity to compound your money very well. When we started this research, Rob and I didn't know that it would yield an investment strategy that we would want to work on full-time. The research showed that our approach worked even better than we expected and that it could be applied effectively to portfolios with hundreds of holdings. These findings led to our launching several long-short funds, as well as several funds with index-like diversification. Just before, you said that you would have gone broke being short the bottom decile and being long the top decile. What are you doing differently in your long-short funds to avoid that trap? Rob and I directly manage the risk. Although we have a team of six smart technology guys who help us, all smarter than I am, none have any financial background. We purposely picked people who didn't have a financial background because Rob and I wanted to be the portfolio managers. We wanted to create the best portfolio of our longs and shorts subject to various constraints. We wanted to manage our betas on the long and short side. We wanted to limit our concentration in any specific industry group and limit our exposure in any single stock. We have a widely diversified portfolio. In our small-cap portfolio, the largest long position is around 0.6% of equity, and the largest short position is even smaller. How are your long-only equity indexes different from existing indexes? Most investors have bad choices. 70% of mutual fund managers underperform the market over time, as measured by the S&P 500, primarily because of their fees that reduce the total return. You might think that you could do better by trying to find managers among the 30% that outperform the market. 
The problem, however, is that there is no correlation between those who did well in the past three, five, or ten years and those who continue to do well in the future. Since investors can't predict which 30% of the managers will do better than the market, the obvious conclusion is to simply go with an index fund, which has lower cost and is tax-efficient, and that makes some sense. But it turns out that most popular indexes, such as the S&P 500 and Russell indexes, are very inefficient because they are market capitalization-weighted. In a market capitalization-weighted index, the higher the price of a stock, the larger the percentage of the index it will represent. Therefore, by definition, a market capitalization-weighted index will automatically own too much of the overpriced stocks and too few of the bargain-priced ones. Of course, equally weighted indexes will also include plenty of valuation errors, but since all stocks are weighted equally, these errors will be random in contrast to the systematic errors inherent in market capitalization weighting. The way you can tell how much capitalization weighting costs investors is to compare these indexes to equal weighted indexes of the same stocks. Based on the returns during the past 40 years, equal weighting has beat market capitalization weighting by about 2% per year. One problem with equal weighting is that stock number 500 is much smaller than stock number 1, and if too many people tried to do equal weighting, the amount of buying in the smaller stocks would distort their prices. Additionally, because prices are always changing, there are more transaction costs in maintaining an equal weighted index. Because of these problems, Rob Arnott came up with a fundamentally based index, the RAFI FTSE Index which weights companies based on the size of their sales, book value, cash flow, and dividends rather than their market capitalization. Because the weighting factors used in the index are correlated to company market capitalization, larger market capitalization companies will account for a larger percentage of the total index. And since price is not involved, errors are also random, similar to an equal-weighted index, and the index performs about 2% better than capitalization-weighted indexes. So the fundamentally based index does about as well as an equal weighted index, but it can handle more money. That is exactly right. We thought we could provide significant additional improvement by creating an index that allocated more money to cheaper stocks. All the existing value indexes, such as the Russell value indexes, are capitalization weighted. For example, the Russell 1000 value index will take a subset of the Russell 1000 companies, usually 650 stocks, that have the lowest price-to-book ratios and whatever other value factors they look at, but then they weight those stocks by market capitalization. In contrast, we are placing more weight on the cheaper companies, which is quite a different thing. We have found that by constructing an index this way, we could create an index that, over the past 20 years, would have beaten the S&P 500 by an average of 7% per year with the same beta and volatility. In addition to indexes, we have put together more select funds with around 100 of the cheapest stocks, also weighted by cheapness. What is interesting is that in the first six months of this year, our value select fund, which invests in U.S. equities, was number one in its category out of about 1,300 funds, and our select international fund was the single worst fund in its category out of about 400 funds. We were both the very best and the very worst following the exact same strategy in different markets, and I found that fascinating. What is the implication of that? The Value Select Fund, which was the best-performing fund in its category, beat the market by only 5%, while the Select International Fund, which was the worst-performing fund in its category, underperformed the market by only 5%. It tells you that no one was really picking stocks. If we can be number one out of 1,300 by outperforming by only 5%, 
and the last place fund out of about 400 in another category by underperforming by only 5%, it means that almost everyone must be index-hugging. You run both large and small-cap funds. Do you believe there is more opportunity in small-cap stocks? Although I don't believe the small-cap anomaly exists within the Russell 3000, I do still think it is very important to look in the small-cap universe because lesser-followed companies are more likely to be misvalued. Those misvaluations can consist of both undervaluations and overvaluations, so there may not be any directional bias on average. But that does not take away from the fact that the small-cap sector may be a particularly fertile ground to look for undervalued stocks because it is less followed. What is the story behind the Value Investors Club you started? In 1999, we had one of the best ideas I had seen in a long time in our portfolio. We thought we were one of the few investment firms on the street to have uncovered this opportunity. One of my partners, John Petrie, had found a posting on a Yahoo message board that had precisely analyzed the same situation that we thought we were such geniuses to have figured out. It was a complicated capital structure with lots of interesting parts. If you analyzed it correctly, you found it was a company that was trading at half its cash value with a good business attached to it, but it was very hidden. Yet here was someone on a Yahoo message board who had nailed it. John and I had the same reaction. Well, apparently there is intelligent life out there. We agreed that it would be interesting to put together a group of these guys who would share ideas with each other. We came up with the idea of pre-qualifying people to join the group. I had been teaching at Columbia for a number of years. The only way you could join was to submit an investment write-up on a specific company that would have received an A-plus in my class at Columbia. Perhaps only two or three students in my class achieve this grade each year, and they are a group of pretty smart people, so we really set the bar quite high. Who would judge whether the original submission was good enough to warrant entry into the club? Back then I did, along with my partner John Petrie, who co-founded the club with me. How many people are part of the club? We limit it to 250 members. You must get a ton of submissions from people who want to join the club. We do. A lot of them are good, but we are looking for the great ones. But how do you find time to go through them? Originally, I helped, but now a board consisting of John Petrie and a number of managers who we are close with handles that job. The people on the board are anonymous. We are the only ones who know who they are. Has the club been a good source of ideas over time? Yes, and one of the nice benefits has been that we have met incredibly talented people. We even helped some of them start their own funds. The people we backed are not big names. They are simply people who are passionate about investing. Most of them have chosen to run smaller amounts of money and get higher rates of return rather than build a big business. So a lot of the members are hedge fund managers. We originally wanted individuals, actually the first person who inspired this idea, the one who had posted his analysis of a complicated trade on a Yahoo message board, had a job working in a supermarket. He is a brilliant guy and he is now working as an analyst. The people in the club have varied backgrounds. Although we had envisioned it as a club for individual investors, it quickly attracted a lot of professionals who wanted to share in the ideas. About half of the 250 members in the club are professional managers. Once people are accepted into the Value Investors Club, do they still continue to post new ideas? What is the incentive for them to do so? There are no membership fees, but we require each member to submit two idea write-ups per year and to assign a rating to 20 other ideas. If you are willing to share your best ideas, then you can stay in. If you're not, you are asked to leave. 
Is the website only visible to the 250 club members? Right now, for teaching purposes and to attract talent, we do allow non-members to have access to posted ideas with a 90-day lag or access with a 45-day lag if they register. Since the ideas are value-based, many of them are still timely, even after these lags. What are the three biggest mistakes investors make? First, succumbing to emotions. They tend to make investment decisions based on an emotional response to price action or what they read in the papers or hear on the news. Second, investing without knowledge. If you can't value a company, you have no basis on which to invest. Valuing a company is pretty hard, and probably no more than 1% or 2% of investors have the ability to properly value companies. You can't buy companies for a lot less than they are worth unless you can figure out what they are worth in the first place. Third, placing too much weight on the recent past performance of managers. We inadvertently created an interesting experiment that vividly demonstrated the impact of investor errors. After I wrote the little book that beats the market, we set up a website called magicformulainvesting.com. At the time, I wasn't planning on managing outside capital, but many investors who read the book asked for help in executing the strategy. Since I had always been fascinated by the idea of a benevolent brokerage firm that allowed people to pick their own stocks from a limited list of pre-selected names based on value, we teamed up with Blake Darcy, who had founded DLJ Direct, to set up that type of brokerage firm. Investors were also encouraged to pick at least 20 or 30 stocks, so they got the average instead of being overly dependent on a few stocks. Blake suggested that we also add a checkbox that allowed investors to choose the option of having us manage the portfolio rather than picking the stocks themselves. Less than 10% of the people decided to choose my original idea of doing it themselves, and over 90% just checked the box for us to do it for them. We tracked how the individual investors who managed their own portfolios from the exact same list of stocks did versus the automatic portfolios we constructed. The self-managed accounts underperformed the professionally managed accounts by over 25% in the first two years. I thought that was fascinating. We had effectively created a control group experiment. Here are the people who did it themselves, and here are the people who did it automatically. Both groups had the same principles and the exact same list of stocks, but letting investors make their own decisions destroyed all the outperformance. Why did they do so much worse? There are a number of reasons that are probably common to most individual investors. They took their exposure down when the market fell. They tended to sell when individual stocks or their portfolios as a whole underperformed. They did much worse than random in selecting the stocks from our pre-screened list probably because by avoiding the stocks that were particularly painful to own, they missed some of the biggest winners. What was your worst mistake? We found a business, Key3 Media, that had a great return on tangible capital employed and great operating leverage. It was a trade show company that used to run Comdex, the largest technology trade show. They would rent space in Las Vegas for their shows at $2 per square foot and re-rent it for $62. The company was an impending spin-off that was part of Ziff Davis. Because of a special situation that allowed us to create long exposure in the stock at $3 per share before the spin-off, which was a very cheap price, we took a 10% position in it. Several months later, it IPO'd at $6 per share, giving us a quick double on the stock. Within a few more months, the stock price doubled from the IPO level, so at that point the single stock had quadrupled from our entry-level price and grown to about 40% of our portfolio. The business started to falter a little, but the worst loss came when the company made a large acquisition two days before 9-11. After 9-11, people stopped traveling. 
The operating leverage of renting space at $2 and re-renting it at $62 worked in reverse when they couldn't re-rent the space. Their profits went down almost dollar for dollar with the decline in revenues. In addition, they had leveraged up to make their acquisition. By the time we completely liquidated our position, we had lost back all our profits and then some. So what are the lessons of that experience? Stuff happens. Don't fall in love with any position. Always keep a large margin of safety, even if you're playing with house money. Even though the stock was still at a discount to what I thought it was worth right before 9-11, it obviously was a much less attractive value than it was before it had quadrupled, and we probably should have taken some profits. Also, operating leverage works both ways. To quote Howard Marks, experience is what you got when you didn't get what you wanted. How do you measure risk? As a value investor, I look at risk of loss over the long term. Given my margin of safety, how much could I lose if I hold the stock for two or three years, even if I am wrong in my expectations? I don't look at the stock's volatility in the last three months, which doesn't have much meaning for me at all. I think volatility is so widely used as a risk metric simply because it is easy to measure, not because it is a good gauge of risk of permanent loss of capital. Downside volatility is merely one aspect of risk, not necessarily the most important, while upside volatility isn't much of a risk at all, unless you are short. What course do you teach? I teach at Columbia Business School. The first four years I taught a course called Security Analysis, and for the past 12 years I have taught a course called Value and Special Situation Investing. They are not that different. What do you teach your students? Buffett said if he were to teach a business class, he would teach two things, how to value a business and how to think about stock prices. That's what I do. In the first lecture of the course, I point out that although they are all very smart, there are many other good business schools in the country whose students are also very smart. Most MBAs who get involved in the markets will fail. I explained that therefore it can't be intelligence that is the defining reason why someone is successful in the markets. I think the difference between those who succeed and those who fail is how they think about the market. Everyone is bombarded every day with price movements, explanations for those price movements, macro events, and lots of other information. You need a methodology to cut through all that information and see things as they are. It all comes back to the way Graham looked at the market. Over the short term, prices fluctuate due to emotion, but over the long term, they come back to value. Value investing is figuring out what a business is worth and paying a lot less. I promise my students that if they do good valuation work, the market will agree with them. I just don't tell them when. It could be a few weeks, a few months, or even a few years. But generally, if you have done good valuation work 98% of the time, two or three years is enough time for the market to agree with you. That is a very powerful concept. It gives you patience. Of course, if you do poor valuation work, you can get into trouble. But if you stick to things you understand well, do good valuation work, give yourself a wide margin of safety, and have confidence in your work, eventually you will end up doing quite well. For many businesses, though, it may be very hard to predict what their future growth rate and normalized earnings will be. My students sometimes ask, What do you do for a company that is in a competitive industry, or technology is causing major changes, or new products are coming out, or some other circumstance makes it very difficult to estimate what future earnings might be? I tell them to just skip that company and find a company that they can analyze. It is very important to know what you don't know. As Warren Buffett says, there are no called strikes on Wall Street. You can watch as many pitches as you want and only swing when everything sets up your way. 
Another important point I try to teach my students is that you have to consider not only what your opportunity set is right now, but also what opportunities you may be foregoing later by investing now. If your opportunity set is not that great right now, maybe you should wait another 6 to 12 months before becoming fully invested. Otherwise, if you invest all your capital now based on the current opportunity set, you may not have that money available for a better opportunity in the future, or you might have to sell what you buy now at a lower price to free up the money. That is why I always assume that my minimum bogey is at at least 6% return, even if interest rates are near zero, as they are now. Moreover, I have to beat 6% by a measurable amount because the assumption is that the 6% is risk-free. So I wouldn't take 8% unless I have high confidence that it will grow over time. I need a margin of safety, as Graham would say. I compare normalized earnings to the risk-free rate or 6%, whichever is higher. My opportunity set is not only what my choices are right now, but also what I think my choices might be at some time in the foreseeable future. What has been your experience with investors? Back in 1988, a few years after I started Gotham Capital, one of the earliest fund of funds became an investor. At the time, we were sending only quarterly letters to our investors. The fund of funds said, We have to report to our investors more often. Can we get monthly numbers? I agreed. The first month they were invested, we were up 1.1%, which I thought was pretty good. But I got a call from the head of the fund of funds who said, you know, we have a lot of investments with firms like yours, and on average they were up 1.2% last month. To what do you attribute your underperformance? I sit on several multi-billion dollar investment boards. I know from direct experience that after four or five quarters of outperformance by one manager and underperformance by another manager, the natural response is, one guy knows what he's doing and the other guy doesn't. Not referencing the boards I am involved with, statistics demonstrate that money follows performance, meaning most allocators just chase who did well recently. It is hard to resist this temptation because you are getting all this data, and you have a fiduciary responsibility to try to do a good job. The world has become much more institutionalized over the last 25 years since that early fund of funds invested with us. There is much more number crunching and short-term performance monitoring by institutions, and time horizons have continually shortened. What are the implications of that? Since time horizons have shortened, the advantage of taking a longer-term investment horizon has increased. You would think that with the increased availability of databases, the explosion of computing power, the availability of the Internet, and a lot of really smart math guys getting involved in the financial markets, any factors that have done well over the last 20 years would tend to degrade over time. In fact, the valuation metrics that we use, which are longer-term and require a willingness to wait for them to work, have actually gotten stronger. And the reason for that is the institutionalization of the market has shortened time horizons. It has reduced the window of time managers have to outperform. Most managers can't wait for two years for an investment to work. They have to perform now. Their institutional and individual clients appear to demand it through their money flows. That is why companies that are not expected to do as well in the next year or two as they did in the recent past, or companies that are subject to near-term uncertainty, are systematically underpriced. Even if a manager knows that he should be looking longer term, his investors pressure him for performance over the near term. All the statistics say that money chases the guy who did well last year and leaves the guy who didn't do well last year, and the subsequent performance is actually worse for the guy who did well last year. 
If you look at the past three, five, and ten-year returns of managers, there is no correlation between those who did well in those prior periods and those who do well in the subsequent three, five, and ten years. Returns, however, are what allocators normally rely on to make decisions. If you are an allocator, you typically don't know the thought process that went into each investment decision. All you get to see are the results. The problem is that the past results are very misleading in terms of who is going to do better in the future. One reason for the lack of correlation between past and future performance is that if investors chase good performers, the managers with better recent performance will attract more capital, and it is harder to run more money. As Warren Buffett said, a fat wallet is the enemy of good investment returns. It is very difficult to have a lot of great ideas. If investors keep piling in money, then those managers have to do something with the money, and they may be forced to do some things differently than when they had less money. There is one recent study that looked at the returns of managers during the 2000-2009 period. The study showed that 97% of the top quartile managers for the decade spent at least three years in the bottom half of managers. More surprisingly, 79% of the top quartile managers for the decade spent at least three years in the bottom quartile, and nearly half of them spent at least three years in the bottom decile. You know that investors didn't stick with the managers in the bottom quartile, let alone the bottom decile. Yet those were the managers that ended up with the best record for the entire period. Here is another interesting statistic. The single best performing mutual fund for the entire decade was up 18% a year, on average, during a period when the market was flat. Yet the average investor in that fund lost 8%. That is because every time the fund did well, people piled in, and every time it underperformed, people redeemed. The timing of the money flows was so bad that the investors, on average, turned a fund that was making 18% a year into a losing investment. I think that says it all. Institutions make the same mistakes as smaller investors. Capital allocators should be looking at the process. How does the manager go about picking stocks and managing the portfolio, not returns, which have no predictive value? Only if you really believe in the process do you have some chance of picking a manager who will outperform in the future. It is probably just as difficult to pick a good manager as it is to pick a good stock. Do you believe that in the long-only world, periodic underperformance is almost a natural characteristic of better-performing managers over the long run? That's an interesting question. What I would say is that to beat the market, you have to do something different from the market. And if you are going to do something different, sometimes you will underperform significantly. For example, if you are a value investor, there will be times when the market will be responding to factors such as emotion and momentum where a value approach might perform poorly. How did you get involved in education reform? I am a capitalist, but one of the things that makes capitalism an equitable system is when everyone has a fair chance. The way the system is structured, though, most children in need don't have access to a good education. If you are looking for leverage in philanthropy, that is, you want to get the most bang for your buck, Education is one of the best ways to achieve that goal. I started out by backing a 7th grade class on Long Island that was in a very high-needs community. I visited the class a number of times, and it became quite clear that many of the kids were four or five grades behind in reading and math. This particular charity was helping the kids after school and a little bit before school, but the kids were wasting most of the school day because they were so far behind. After doing this for a few years, I went to the head of the program, Dr. Jerry House, and said that I would like to start with kindergarten or first grade to get to the kids before they fell so far behind. She said that it was a good idea, but that their mandate was to work with middle school and high school kids. At Dr. House's recommendation, I then ended up hooking up with Dr. Robert Slavin of Johns Hopkins, 
who was probably the number one education researcher in the country at the time, and he had put together a program in reading and math for kindergarten and first-grade students. I looked at the statistics for the program, and while it did achieve significant results, only about 50% to 60% of the students were at grade level. The program is called Success for All. I asked Dr. Slavin, How could you truly get success for all? Would more money help? He said, Of course, if it is spent in the right way. I went back to the same school in which I had backed the seventh grade class and told the superintendent, Give me an elementary school and I will spend money until all the kids can read. He turned me down. After some other failed efforts, I finally found a school in Queens that was interested, and we started the program there for K-5. In the second year of the program, they won an award for being one of the most improved schools in the state. How much were you spending per child? $1,000 per year per child. That's all. What was the essence of the program? We provided tutoring in math and English using tutors that were trained in the Success for All program. We also had professionals who monitored the kids so that anyone who needed help would get it. We couldn't hire the tutors through the public school system because of all the red tape, so I just ended up providing them for free. Because I had so much trouble navigating through the bureaucracy of the public school system, I met with Joel Klein. He suggested that I should consider opening a charter school, which would give us the flexibility to hire our own teachers. In 2006, John Petrie and I started a single charter school based on the business model that it would serve as a prototype that could be expanded to other schools if it were successful. We designed the program from the beginning so that it could be replicated. 